morning, Lee Ferguson, those of you, again, who were part of the conference Friday night and Saturday morning, the Relational Wisdom 360, uh, Lee was our speaker. Uh, he's been doing that. How many times, Lee, come on up, how many times have you done this thus far, you figure? I've lost count. Lost count. <laughs> well, add one to your belt. Um, we're glad that you've been here and glad that you're here now. Thank you. It's good to be back. Uh, not just this weekend, but we've been here uh, a few times before. And uh, what we're talking about uh, this weekend is primarily uh, relationships and how uh, God has designed uh, relationships uh, to be a means of making us more uh, like his son, to be a major means of sanctification uh, in uh, our lives. And one of the problems we have is sometimes we're not really good at relationships. Uh, we have our own uh, difficulties. We have our own struggles. And so uh, what we were working on this weekend was uh, learning how to function uh, in a better way in the three relationships that we have in this life uh, that are part of what it means to be uh, a human being. A relationship with God, a relationship with ourselves, and a relationship with other people. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning uh, in this passage from uh, Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to be reading verses 30 through 32. Uh, and... Usually before I read a passage of scripture, it, when I'm preaching, I uh, pray, and I usually tell people why uh, we're praying. Uh, uh, the first reason is the Bible tells us that it is not a normal book. Uh, my wife likes to read mysteries, and I like to read uh, science fiction and fantasy novels. And I don't necessarily need uh, God's help to understand those, uh, unless the author is really poor. Uh, I can go by the way God has made me wisdom and understanding and read those. But the Bible says that no one can understand the Bible without the work of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, uh, we always begin by declaring a dependence upon the Holy Spirit and asking the Holy Spirit to come and to be my teacher. But secondly, there's another problem, uh, and that is uh, you and I tend, if we're not careful, uh, to read the Bible so that it reflects upon me uh, in the best possible way. Uh, and what God wants us to see in the Bible is, is the way we really are. He wants it to be a real mirror. So when I look in the mirror, I say, oh, I uh, forgot to brush my hair. I better go do that. Uh, I forgot to do this. Uh, God wants us to look in the mirror of his word and to see, you know, I've already got to work on that anger. I've already got to work on making those changes that God uh, wants me to make. And the problem is, and I think this is a pretty safe statement to make. The older we get, the less we like change. And sometimes the older we get as Christians, uh, the more we think we have it together. And that's not always true. So would you pray with me as ask the Holy Spirit to come and to teach us. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that tells us everything that we need to know about you and everything that you require of us in this life. And yet we acknowledge that we need your Holy Spirit to be our teacher and our guide. And so we pray that your Spirit would come and work in our hearts. And Lord, we come acknowledging that this day there are things in our lives that need to change that only your Spirit can change. And so we pray that we would come with hearts that long uh, to be molded into the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Ephesians chapter 4. 
beginning with verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. As I mentioned, we look at this passage, and it's a totally relational passage. Uh, Paul is talking about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. He's talking about our relationship with ourselves. We'll see that as it talks about reflecting on who we are and our sins and our forgiveness, and it's about our relationship with other people as well. But one of the problems we have to admit from the very beginning is that uh, relationships are things that we don't always do well. At least there are a large number of relationships uh, that we have trouble with. But the reality is for the believer, uh, relationships are absolutely vital uh, to the day in and day out experience of living uh, a life that's going to be honoring uh, to Christ. Uh, you may be familiar with the name uh, Ed Welch. Uh, he's a counselor uh, and an author for the uh, Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. He has a blog uh, that you can sign up for not too long ago. Uh, he was talking about uh, where uh, Christians go to get help uh, when times are uh, difficult. And since he's a counselor and trains counselors, you might think that the answer he's going to give is we go, first of all, to counselors. But that's not what he says. He says, take a random sample of Christians. Ask them a simple question. What was the most helpful thing to you when you were going through trouble? And this is what you'll hear. The number one answer is people. People are the cause of most of our trouble, and people are the salve for most troubles. A letter, a visit, and then another visit, kind and understanding words, or a consistent presence, sitting next to you in church, dropping off a small gift, having a meal together, helping with chores around the house, reading to you, offering scripture that was helpful to them and their trouble, downloading worship music for, for you. The list is endless. Life can be very creative in ways that comforts those who are hurting. And I think most of us would agree with that. If we look at the times in our life where we have struggled the most, felt the most hurt, it's because of people, usually because of people we care about, but we'll also tell you that the things that mattered was when people who loved us came alongside and did things, loved us. Sometimes it was only a matter of sitting there not saying anything. And so I want us to reflect in this passage on these three relationships, our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with others. And this fits in with what we talked about this weekend in terms of uh, learning uh, not just to uh, be vaguely aware of God, but being particularly aware of God and being engaged with God. And, and I think this passage uh, talks about both those aspects. Uh, in verse 30 it says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The first thing I have to tell you is, is I, as I talk about these exhortations from uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 4, if you go on and read in Ephesians chapter 5 and Ephesians chapter uh, 6, uh, you find some pretty tall uh, orders in terms of ways that God is telling us uh, to uh, live. Uh, 
Uh, he exhorts uh, husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, and if you're like me, from the very beginning, you want to say, that's impossible. Let's go on to help part number two. It talks about children being obedient to their parents. And as difficult as they look, they are all within the means that God has given us to live for him. But it depends on chapters 1, 2, and 3. Chapters 1, 2, and 3 are just filled with notions of God's grace. For example, it says, You were dead in your trespasses and sin. You didn't ask God to make you alive. He did it by a supernatural act of his spirit to take you from being someone who was spiritually dead, being someone who's spiritually alive, which means you can. Not perfectly, not completely, but in bits and starts. Obey your parents. Love your wife as you are loved by Christ. Women can learn what it means to really respect their husbands and submit. And so as I give you these exhortations, you've got to see that you've got to get a hold of chapters 1 through 3 and see the richness of God's grace and the person of the Lord Jesus Christ to equip you to do what he's calling us to do here. But I think we see in this passage uh, that Paul wants us to be, first of all, aware of the reality of who God is. And, and as he talks about that, he, he simply makes a statement that we were sealed by the Holy Spirit, which brings us into the most complex of all theological questions about the Trinity, the Father, the Son, uh, and the Holy Spirit, that God is three persons in one Godhead. And, and I can't explain that. I can't make it easier to understand. Uh, fortunately, I come from uh, a... Uh, Scottish background and Scottish theologians have a very technical term for understanding things as difficult as the Trinity from a Christian perspective. And this is technical. You'll need to write it down. You'll probably remember it. And that things like the Trinity are better felt than tilt. It's better to say, okay, this is what it says. I can't quite figure it out, but I'm going to believe it and hold on to it. And, and so being aware of the reality of the Holy Spirit is being aware of God, aware of God in my life and in my heart. Being aware that the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in you as a believer. Romans 8 9 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God, through of Christ, does not belong to him. And so, despite what some of your other Christian friends may tell you, as a believer, no matter how much you're struggling, no matter how much you find yourself failing, the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you. And, and, and you hold on to that truth in terms of being aware that that's the reality of who God is. But, but I think that God wants you to be more than just aware of the reality of the Holy Spirit in you. I think he wants you uh, to really let that fact amaze you, to really engage in knowing God and how incredible it is that the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you. And one of the reasons we don't find that absolutely amazing is because we're not good at the second part of this, of knowing ourselves. But I just want you to think about it for a minute, what it means for the Holy Spirit to come and dwell in you. When Debbie and I moved to Murfreesboro, Tennessee, uh, 15 years ago, 
That's how long it's been. We wanted to have a house that we could move into. There didn't need any work done on it. Uh, and, and that's what uh, we did. And now uh, we uh, worship what I'm not preaching or doing these uh, lectures uh, in a church in East Nashville where uh, a good many of the people who we know there are uh, young enough to be our children or our grandchildren. Uh, we raised the average age of the congregation quite a bit when we decided to start attending them. We have all these young friends, all these young couples who are buying their first house. And every now and then they'll, they'll text us and they'll say, we got the deal on our house. Here's a picture of it. It's a bit of a fixer-upper, but we really love it. And so I'll look at it on my phone and I'll say, ooh, that is a fixer-upper. I'm not sure I'd want to live there. I'm not sure I could live there. And a lot of times we think that when it comes to our lives, uh, our lives are like our house when we moved in, when we didn't have anything to do to it. But the reality is that you are a fixer-upper, a major fixer-upper. There's a lot of work that has to be done in your life. And here's what's incredible as, as we read the scriptures and as we see God's plan of uh, salvation is that when, and, and I think I can say this and be reverent about the Trinity, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were planning our salvation in eternity past, so they got to the point where they said, someone's going to have to go into this fallen world and become one of these human beings and die for their sins. Uh, Jesus just put his hand up and says, I'll do that. I want to do that. And then the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit said, well, you know, if this is really going to work, one of us has to go and live in these people. And the Holy Spirit didn't say, oh, I should have gone for the other one. He said, that's what I want to do. I want to live inside these fixer-uppers. And I think when you sort of think about it in, in, in that way, it's just absolutely astonishing. And, and I think one of the problems that we have uh, and I've been a Presbyterian all my life, uh, e except for two years uh, when I was dunked in a Baptist church when I was first converted and really didn't know what I was doing. Uh, and I think that as Presbyterians, we really have a problem with the Holy Spirit. We're not sure we want to emphasize it all that much. We know a lot about the Father. We know a lot about Jesus, but we're just a little bit nervous about the Holy Spirit. But the reality is the Holy Spirit is vital your life as a believer day in and day out. Unless you understand that, you're going to be sunk because you're going to think you've got to live this difficult Christian life totally on your own. The last thing that I want to say that means, I think, going from just being aware of the reality of the Spirit and being glad of that to, to being engaged with the Holy Spirit and being amazed at how the Spirit works in our life is to notice how Paul talks about the Holy Spirit's reaction to your sin and my sin. He says, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit is no less divine than God the Father or God the Son. And it could easily have said, do not kindle the wrath of God by sinning against him. 
because God's wrath does come against sin. Do not anger the Son by your disobedience. Because that's also true. But grief is a word that's associated with love. <laughs> grief results from something in a loving relationship that's not going quite as well as it should. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a longtime uh, pastor of Westminster Chapel in uh, London. And uh, he writes about this passage and says, I say this is a most wonderful and astonishing statement, and it sheds a light, a flood of light, upon the whole Christian doctrine of redemption. When a Christian sins, what he should be most conscious of is not so much that he has done that which is wrong, or even that which has broken God's law, what should really trouble him is this, that he has offended against love. The very term grief establishes it. Our relationship is now a personal one. And, and so I think that as that happens, it, it, it deepens our love for God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and, and really enables us uh, to be more and more engaged in knowing who God is through reading uh, his word. The, the second thing that we see is that growing uh, in grace means uh, being more self-aware and being more self-engaged. Uh, because as he talks about not grieving the Holy Spirit, uh, he sort of lists some of the things he might be talking about. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. We become self-aware when we recognize that we sin regularly. That might sound like a small thing to you, uh, but it really isn't. One of the things that's helpful for us in terms of the teachings of the Lord Jesus comes to us from uh, the prayer he teaches us that teaches how to pray. And one of the things he tells us in that prayer is to, is to pray this way, give us this day our daily bread. Now, if you're like me, uh, I would much rather uh, have him tell me, uh, Father, uh, seal up my 401k at the current rate. I don't want to depend upon you for work tomorrow, just off in the future. But it's a daily prayer. We're acknowledging that anything that we have comes from God and we have to ask for it every day. Well, if that's true, the petition about forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins is also a daily prayer. And, and the reason I mention that is because we live in such a horrific time. Where someone goes into a nightclub uh, in Orlando, Florida and, and murders 49 people just like that. And sometimes we might have a tendency uh, to say, well, at least I'm not like that. Really, I may not be all that bad. But the thing they have to understand here is that as Paul lists these sins, anger, clamor, slander, he doesn't say, you know, these are some things that might happen. I know you people pretty well. I don't think they're going to, but just in case, I'll mention them. He says, this is what you're going to struggle with. 
you're going to struggle with real anger. You're really going to struggle with clamor, which is a word that has to do with disharmony in relationships. Uh, Paul doesn't have any pretenses in thinking that he's writing to a group of people who, because they've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, have put all their sins behind them. And it's really important for us to own these words. Because sometimes Christians have a tendency, I think it's because they really don't believe that Jesus can forgive all their sins, to rename sins. Oh, honey, I wasn't angry with you. I was just, I was a little upset. No, 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 that, that wasn't an argument. That wasn't a fight. That was just a, a minor disagreement. It certainly wasn't clamor. Because, you see, Paul gives us the great Christian privilege of really naming our sins as bad as they are. Because we know the reality of forgiveness. But, you know, sometimes the church really isn't good at that. Sometimes uh, there are teachers and there are preachers who want us to think that the real place of the Christian life is just a little bit higher morally than everybody else. When I first moved to Tennessee, I went back and forth to South Carolina because I was living here and my wife and son, who was still living with us, were in South Carolina. And one day I was riding along uh, I-40, somewhere around Cookville, and this car passed me. He had a bumper sticker on it that said, if you're still sinning, you're not saved. And God was gracious. There was a great temptation uh, for me to pass him and give him the universal salute and then pull him off the road as if he was angry and just ask him, are you sinning now? But I did not do that. But I want to ask people what they mean by that. And I get great comfort from uh, a man by the name of John, John Ortberg. I'm not sure if you've ever read any of his books. They're, they're really helpful in terms of the Christian life. And he talks about how Christians tend to redefine their sin. And he says... I heard a Christian leader one time speak about two great sins that plagued his spiritual life. One was the times when he was on an airplane and was not bold enough to witness to the passenger sitting next to him, as Jesus would have been. His other confession was there were times when his mind wandered while he was praying. He expressed great angst over these sins. What hope does that leave for you and me, who, as the author and Lamont says, do things that make Jesus want to drink gin straight out of the cat dish. Now, you may be uncomfortable with both, both those languages, but I think the second one is more honest. And, and I think the great thing we see here is that God enables us to be honest about ourselves. You remember when I was talking about you being a fixer-upper, there's a a uh, quote in your bulletin from uh, C.S. Lewis from his uh, talk on mere Christianity, where it says, Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild the house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping at the leaks in the roof and so on. You know these jobs needed doing. 
so you're not surprised, but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. Does, does that seem to make any sense? What on earth is he up to? The explanation, he's building quite a different house than the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting up an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you would be made into a decent little cottage. He's building a palace. He intends to come and live there himself. And at times, you may uh, feel uh, just even a little bit uh, worse than that. You may feel like you were uh, in the house when the house burned down, from my other quote there. Because sometimes God just comes in and does a lot of things that we really don't like. But the thing is, is that when we really understand the truth of the gospel, we don't have to be frightened of that because we know that our sins are forgiven and that God is really working to make us into the way he wants us to be. And that moves us on to the third area of relationship, and that is our relationship with other people. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. In Colossians 3.13, he says something very similar. He says, bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. He talks about one anothering here. And, and I think that when he talks about our relationship with other people, the way we become really aware of that is when we see ourselves as sinners the way we really are, big sinners. But we really begin to engage with others when we see that seeing our sin enables us to forgive the sins of others. It does enable us to be tender-hearted, moving toward others. It's not just being nice, but it's really being willing to be involved in the life of others in ways that bring about real change in love and mercy. Lots of times we like to quote 1 Corinthians 13 when we talk about love, but we don't pay close attention to it where it says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. And so as we get to this point where we really are understanding how much God has forgiven us in Christ and moves us to be tender-hearted toward others. That's just such a wonderful phrase that is so contrary uh, to the world in which we live. And, and, and I think it's talking about being tender-hearted toward one another in times of difficulty and struggle. As, as you listen to, 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 to news stories, uh, you will hear people who want to be tender-hearted toward people who are being hurt or harmed or sinned against. But you don't hear much in terms of being tender-hearted toward those who are struggling with the sin of their own heart and, and their own life. One of the great exceptions, I think, that's been in that in terms of those, the stories in the news was uh, a year ago this week was the shooting uh, in, in Charleston, uh, South Carolina, where a lone gunman went in and uh, shot seven, I believe, 
black worshipers of the congregation there. And people from the news media, people from all over were tenderhearted toward those people who were killed or they'd lost loved ones there. But it was amazing how tenderhearted and forgiving many of the people in that church were toward this man who came and sat in their church for an hour at a Bible study and then killed the people in that room. They talked about forgiveness. I, I was listening this week because it was uh, the one-year anniversary. There's a woman who said, I have absolutely no doubt that if that man confesses these sins to Jesus and asks for forgiveness, that all those people that he killed will see him in heaven. The news media doesn't say things like that. Tender-hearted Christians do. And so I think that the real reality of moving from just being aware of our relationships to really being engaging in them is really asking God to give us tender hearts toward other people. Of really being willing to give what the Puritans used to call the, the judgment of charity, of thinking that the best of a people in a situation rather than the worst. And then really learning to forgive one another. But what Paul does in this passage, he, he, he brings it uh, all the way around. He, he does a 360 on us, and that's where our understanding of our relational wisdom 360 comes from, is that uh, it starts with me maybe understanding myself better, and that helps me understand my neighbor better, which moves me into a deeper relationship with God, which gives me a deeper relationship with myself, because at the very end, as he talks about forgiving one another, he brings it all back to our relationship with God and who God is. Forgiving one another is a God in Christ forgave you. See, the very power, the very heart of dealing with myself and, and dealing with others and, and dealing with God and really engaging in all three of those relationships comes down to whether or not I really believe how much God has forgiven me in Christ. If, if you're like me, there are a handful of things in your past that, that you find uh, so disgusting that whenever they pop into your mind, you just sort of wrestle and you say, how could God possibly forgive that? It could have been something you did as a kid. It could have been something that you did as a teenager. And, and the great truth is, is that that accusation... <laughs> Uh, maybe coming from your own heart, but it's also coming from your enemy because it's the devil who's called the accuser of the brethren. But the Bible also says that Jesus is the one who throws the accuser out because whenever any of those accusations are brought up, he says, I have paid for that. It's forgiven. And you see, that's what enables me to really be honest with my own sin, not call it by something else because I know it's been forgiven. It can't separate me from God. And therefore, I can name it so I can deal with it. And as I name my own sins, it makes me realize that the way that other people treat me aren't nearly as bad as how I've treated God so I can love them and forgive them from the heart and have relationships that really are powerful and abiding. And then that brings me back <laughs> to recognizing how sinful I am and being amazed that my father would love me uh, that much. That I'm just like the prodigal son. He did not 
Father did not wait for me to get close enough to the house to walk in. He runs out and hugs me and greets me because I am his son, even though I have failed him. So I would encourage you to really learn and ask God to give you a heart, to really apply your heart to these threefold relationships so that you are really God-aware on a daily basis, God-engaged on a daily basis, self-aware and self-engaged. And, and a lot of times that means, as the psalmist will show you, uh, talking to yourself more than listening to yourself uh, and being aware of others and being engaged with others so that particularly in the church it becomes a place where relationships really are a means by which God sanctifies you and one another and the church itself. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we gather this together on this day that we remember and celebrate the resurrection where you declared your son Jesus to be the Son of God with power, where you declared that you had fully accepted his sacrifice in the place of our sins. Pray that you would cause that to be a truth that is more and more amazing to us every day, something that more and more changes us every day so that we really see ourselves and those around us being transformed more and more into the image of your Son who you sent to die for us. We pray in his name, O oh Lord. Amen.